This is A Closer Look with Arthur Levitt. Arthur Levitt is a former chairman of the U.S. Securities and Exchange Commission, a Bloomberg LP board member, a senior advisor to the Promontory Financial Group, and a policy advisor to Goldman Sachs. Matt Levine is something of a Bloomberg icon. Uh, He's a columnist writing about the financial industry in a daily newsletter called Money Stuff. But he began his career as a lawyer and clerk for the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Third Circuit before moving on to being a mergers and acquisitions lawyer at Wachtell, Lipton, Rosen, and Katz. He also worked at Goldman Sachs for four years, first as an associate, then a vice president. Before joining Bloomberg View, Matt was the editor of DealBreaker.com. He joins me now for a closer look. Matt, you write a daily column for Bloomberg View called Money Stuff. You have an entertaining, irreverent take on the world of finance. Who's your reader? The reader is... You know, I sort of started writing for people in the financial world, um, people who are interested, in, who, who typically work in the industry, and are inter- interested in kind of having a uh, taking a step back and considering trends in the industry from a um, broader perspective. But I find I have a lot of readers in tech and just sort of random people who are interested in finance and find the newsletter to be a good way in. With everything going on, how do you decide? Which topics are going to be the of greatest interest? Uh, the nice thing about the newsletter for me is that it is pretty much what I'm interested in. So things that make me laugh, things that make me angry, things that I think I have something to say about them are what go in. I think you know there's, there are some things where people expect me to write about them, right? The big news, the big financial news of the day has to go in in some form. But what I'm trying for is something that's interesting, something that where I can say something that challenges people rather than just kind of the biggest news. Well, your, your stuff is truly interesting and mostly unexpected. Uh, how do you make the decision as to what you're going to use for tomorrow? Pretty much what there is. You know, it's a very, um, it's, a, it's a process driven by panic. If there's something that I think is interesting, it goes in because, you know, I have a limited time to find stuff. Um, but yeah, you know, just like there, there are some things that, that I, I, I read the first paragraph of a news item and I know that it's going to be fun for money stuff readers. It's going to sort of, you know, what, what I love is uh, uh, news that's like a little further afield from the center of finance that somehow casts light on, on, the, I, on that center. How do you account for the fact that the market seems so exuberant in the face of an administration that is... Uh, unpredictable. It's 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 a baffling mystery. I think that some part of it is that it's a it's an administration that has these like very outlier risks of very terrible things happening. But I think that in the main, there's a sort of market reaction of this is administra- an administration that isn't going to do much to change much. We're in basically an economic recovery. Things are basically good as a sort of background uh, setup, and this does not feel like an administration that is going to make radical regulatory changes because they don't have the 
kind of capacity or, 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 or political capital to do that. And to the extent they do make radical changes, they're all going to be deregulatory and tax reducing and things that the market tends to like. That's very interesting. What you're saying, in effect, is <clears throat> there's a lot of bluster, a lot of verbiage, but a designed plan to disrupt our markets in their efforts to change is just not is not part of the equation. Yeah, I mean, I think before the election, you heard people talking about, you know, if Trump is elected, what will he do to to drastically restrict trade and and to do things that could really damage the economy? No one talks about that now. It's just it, it doesn't like whether or not there is some uh, desire in, in portions of the White House to drastically restrict trade. It's just the the idea that someone's going to put together a carefully thought out plan and muster votes in Congress to do it. It's just it just seems very far fetched. Tell me, Matt, do you think that Dodd-Frank, one way or the other, is going to make a difference? I don't know. I, I think that, you know, on the one hand, I think there's a sort of general perspective that these that, 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 that hastily constructed regulatory regimes to respond to a crisis are always backward-looking and address that crisis. And so there have been a lot of changes at banks in terms of capitalization and, and, and you know, cutting off a specific securitization products that caused the last crisis, where you'd sort of look around and say, what's, what are the odds that the exact same things would cause the next crisis, too? I do think that like Dodd-Frank has, has, had, a, has had a big impact on the banking system and on the, on the culture of the banking system. I think things like the Volcker Rule have really changed how not just like the specific setups of banks, but also like the sort of cultural like approach to there are just many fewer big time risk takers at banks because the Volcker rule has kind of shifted them out. Capitalization has become much more important and, and, and you know, kind of extracting the last basis point of, of, uh, of, of return on equity has become less important. Did so, the Volcker rule do that or did the practicalities of running a bank force that move toward? Well, definitely both. But I think that, I think that, you know, I think there's like a natural cycle where you know, the day after you have a huge crisis, you fire a lot of risk takers, and then you ramp risk back up slowly. And I think the Volcker rule has has impeded that ramping of risk, ramping back up of risk. Right? I think that I think that not only were bankers cautious in two thousand nine, but also regulatory the regulatory regime made them more cautious. We'll continue this conversation with Bloomberg View columnist Matt Levine in just a moment. This is a closer look with Arthur Levitt. It's 12 minutes past the hour. This is a closer look at Bloomberg View columnist Matt Levine, who writes a daily newsletter called Money Stuff, where he explains complex ideas in plain English. I'm Arthur Levitt. Matt, we were just talking about the Volcker Rule, and I'd ask you the operative question. If we had the power to make that Volcker Rule disappear tomorrow, you think our markets would react? I don't know. I think that, you know, the case for, I think the strongest case for getting rid of the Volcker Rule has to do with market making. So market making is allowed under the Volcker Rule. Banks are allowed to trade for their own account. To satisfy customer demand, but I think there's a there's a widespread view that that exception is too narrow to really allow for market making. That banks aren't 
able to kind of take the appropriate level of market risk to make markets function better. And there's a lot of worry. There's a lot of people who worry that bond markets in particular are uh, there are difficulties in trading bonds because banks are not there to make markets. I'm not sure how true that is, but I think there's like clearly some force to that. I think even at this point, the Fed kind of believes that. And so I think that if you got rid of the Volcker rule, you know, particularly in the way that's being discussed in in the administration and in the, in the Financial Choice Act, I think there's some chance that uh, the functioning of some less liquid markets would would become a little better. Do you think that the Hensel Ring legislation would impact our markets as much as the effort to do away with Glass-Steagall some years ago? No, I don't. I don't. I don't really. It's difficult for me to understand the the Financial Choice Act. I think that it like it has a sort of grab bag element where a lot of it is to kind of roll back uh, the post crisis regulations. That it's difficult to know like the short term effect of that. I mean, it's difficult to know the short term effect of the Glass Steagall repeal too, right? I mean, that that occurred, and then decades later there was a massive financial crisis that may or may not have had anything to do with that. Um, but in terms of like actual functioning of banks going forward after Glass Steagall repeal, there was a you know there, there was there are big changes in the banking system. The 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 Choice Act seems sort of more miscellaneous. There's not doesn't feel like there's a sort of single guiding idea that would lead to big changes. You know, Sandy Wild was able to pull off doing away with Glass Steagall because of the confluence of Phil Graham in the Senate and the times were right and he could do it. In a different environment he couldn't touch it. Today, in this environment, is Hensel Ring going to be able to get as much done? Will the Senate go along with it? Uh, what odds would you give on changes of the magnitude that his proposal sets forth? Well, my background assumption is that no one will get anything done, right? I mean, my, my background assumption is that legislative successes are going to be relatively few, and the, the, the Hensel Ring proposal doesn't seem to be at the top of most people's lists, right? I mean, if it's the fourth most important thing that Washington is going to get to this year, it's not going to get to it this year. In terms of the environment, you wouldn't think that banking deregulation would be a populist or a popular approach. It seems to have a weird appeal, right? I mean, like the Trump administration, one of the kind of few big projects that they've put out is a bank deregulatory uh, kind of grab bag proposal that is actually sort of less deregulatory than the Choice Act in a lot of ways, but is there, right? So there is there's a sort of like institutional support for bank deregulation that seems odd given its lack of popular support, but it is there. But it, it doesn't feel like it's it's so high on anyone's list that like I'd put a high odds on it happening soon. You know, Matt, talking about Trump and uh, financial regulation is almost a non sequitur, <laughs> uh, and I guess. Well, I agree, but but that's like you know, there's like delegated. He's picked a lot of people who are interested in it, and he doesn't seem to care. So there's some chance of the administration actually having some putting some political capital work there. Now, you've been around the street in a variety of capacities. Do you think that Gary Cohn has helped or hurt his reputation by trading a position of being the likely successor to Lloyd Blankfein? At Goldman for uh, whatever he's doing for Donald Trump. It's hard to see how it could have helped. I mean, well, I shouldn't say that, right? I mean, 
in the near term, it hasn't helped. There, you read talk about him being the next Fed chair, which I find sort of an astonishing thought. That that I mean, he's he's a very smart guy, but he's a he's a trader, right? He's not a not a economist. So you can imagine, you know, when, when Steve Mnuchin was was Trump's fundraiser, he kind of made it clear to to Bloomberg's Max Abelson and others that it was a gamble, and if it paid off, he would be Treasury Secretary, and whatever harm he did to his reputation by being Trump's fundraiser would be would be absolved by that. I think if Gary Cohen becomes Fed Chair, he's going to undo a lot of harm to his reputation. I think right now, I think people on Wall Street are sort of scratching their heads at what Gary is doing, but. But perhaps it is a perhaps it's a good gamble. I guess I'd be counted as a head scratcher as mm-hmm. well. I mean, he he's not going from X Y Z. He's going from a likely heir position at Goldman to. Well, I think that the the calculation. I think a lot of people think the calculation there is that he was that position was not a great likely heir position, right? Like Lloyd Blankfein. Seems to intend to stick around for a while. Gary had been in the number two role for a long time. One could imagine him being frustrated with that. That could well be true. But the number two at Goldman Sachs could trade that job for 50 really high-profile financial jobs in America and trading it for being Trump's uh, chief financial man, I think, is is a poor trade. I can understand that. I think that you know, on the one hand, do you want the other high-profile financial jobs, right? If if you've been number two at Goldman, is is being the CEO of another bank is it is that big a change? Is that interesting for you, right? And then the other question is just like I think with a lot of people in the Trump administration, there is a a, a sense of I mean, look, it seems that Gary Cohen thinks that he can do some good by reining in Trump's worse impulses on some things and by trying to get some things accomplished. And I think that's a you know, I don't know if that calculation is right, but it's a respectable calculation, I think. He's been a clerk for the U.S. Court of Appeals, a mergers and acquisitions lawyer, an investment banker at Goldman Sachs, and an editor at DealBreaker.com. Matt Levine is now a Bloomberg View columnist, bringing his real-world experience on Wall Street to his daily column about the finance industry called Money Stuff. Matt will return for part two of this interview next week at the same time. By the way, if you have comments about the show or suggestions for topics, you can email me at a closer look at Bloomberg.net. That's a closer look, one word, at Bloomberg.net. And follow me uh, on Twitter at Arthur Levitt, one word. This is a closer look with Arthur Levitt. It's 25 minutes past the hour. This is A Closer Look with Arthur Levitt. Arthur Levitt is a former chairman of the U.S. Securities and Exchange Commission, a Bloomberg LP board member, a senior advisor to the Promontory Financial Group, and a policy advisor to Goldman Sachs. This week, we continue our closer look at Bloomberg View columnist Matt Levine. He writes a daily column about the finance industry called Money Stuff, Before joining Bloomberg, he was the editor of DealBreaker.com, and his writing has been featured on CNN.com, The Wall Street Journal, and he had a regular column at NPR's Money Planet called Ask a Banker. 
His analysis of J.P. Morgan's London whale debacle was featured in the Columbia Journalism Review's Best Business Writing of 2013. Matt, do you think that the Volcker Rule is worth fighting for? I wouldn't fight for it. I don't know. I have very mixed feelings about the Volcker Rule. I think that, you know, when it when it came out, it, it, it seemed to me to kind of address a address a problem that didn't really exist to, to sort of you know to, to to sort of slightly misunderstand the causes of the financial crisis and to ban proprietary trading as a, as a kind of crude solution um, since then I mean on, on, you know the negative of the Volcker rule is largely that it has made it more difficult for banks to make markets which has I think probably at some margin reduced the efficiency of some of our less liquid markets. It's made it harder to trade bonds. I think the argument for the Volcker Rule is that it probably has had some cultural impact on banks. I think that they have uh, they've found it harder to hire and retain risk takers. I think that's a mixed bag. I think that you might want people who are good risk takers at banks, who are good traders, but I think if the goal of the Volcker Rule, as it really was, was to make banks more boring, then you know, you'd have to count that a success. I've been uh, kind of surprised at the passion evoked by the Labor Department's multi-year efforts to put through a fiduciary standard. It really should be the responsibility of the SEC. So the Labor Department has it, and Trump supposedly is thinking of reviving it. Uh, do you agree with me that it's much ado about very little. You know, I've said I'm the person who cares the least about that rule. I, 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 I can't feel a lot of passion about that rule. I think, you know, when people describe it as financial advisors have to put the best interest of their clients first, you can understand why people would be in favor of it. And then the people who oppose it, I think, feel kind of hard done by with that explanation. They say, no, 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 it's not really about that. It's a much worse thing. The passions on both sides strike me as disproportionate to the importance of the rule. Will the consumer financial protection rule survive the Trump administration? The actual work of the CFPB, I think, was, I think in the the later Obama years, was, was quite aggressive and kind of innovative in their in their use of the law which if you if you were if you were one of the companies that was fined you would call that a bad thing right if you thought you know there, there, there are some real objections to they sort of took an approach of regulating by um, by by retroactive penalties so stuff that was going on they said turns out that stuff was not allowed and we're going to go back and fine you rather than using prospective rulemaking I think that the sort of aggressive, uh, approach of the CFPB is just not going to survive this administration. I think just the, the tone of the top is going to be a, 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 a much less aggressive regulator, regardless of what's done structurally about the CFPB. Um, you know, I think that like I, I, I sympathize with a lot of the criticism of the CFPB's approach. I also think that like they had some kind of notable successes that were that were. Um, you know that were that were kind of cleaning up real abuses of, of, of consumers. So it's 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 uh, it's it's hard for me to look at their record and say this was this was like a bad thing. But um, but I, I think it's 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 going to be hard for them to continue that. I think the balance through the years has been so much in favor of business versus the consumer that I'm not bothered as much by the aggressiveness of the bureau. My question to you would be, if you had 
a magic wand and you could wave it and do away with the bureau entirely would you wave that magic wand oh no i think i i think it's a i think it's it's had a very positive effect on on consumer financial products i think they've done a very good job i think that i'm sympathetic with the criticism that much of their work is done by fining people rather than by prospective rulemaking. I'm a big believer that regulatory agencies should regulate by making regulations rather than by looking at previous behavior and fining people for that behavior. Uh, that's a procedural criticism of the CFPB, but I think they're, in terms of their actual work, they've done a like they've 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 been actually really a, a notable success in terms of finding abuses that were not really. Uh, uh, kind of noticed in previous regulatory regimes and fixing them. I keep thinking that the Department of Labor fiduciary standard rule would have had much less trouble if it had gone through the SEC rather than the Department of Labor. Well, I I, I, I can see that. I think that... um, I think there's a strange element to um, and there's a strange fact that you know using the term loosely people who are brokers are not fiduciaries for their customers generically speaking and that confuses people so much uh, and you see it in the you know the the after the financial crisis the hearings where Goldman Sachs was, was sort of dragged out and asked, did you sell your customers these terrible mortgage securities? And Goldman's response was, well, they wanted to buy them. You know, we, we weren't fiduciaries. We're, we're more or less arm's length counterparties who were buying and selling things. And they wanted, they, they, you know, we sold them at a price that they were willing to pay. And that's what we were doing. We weren't in charge of looking out for their best interest. We'll continue this conversation with Bloomberg View columnist Matt Levine in a moment. This is a closer look with Arthur Levitt. It's 12 minutes past the hour. This is a closer look at Bloomberg View columnist Matt Levine, who writes a smart and entertaining daily newsletter about the finance industry called Money Stuff. Matt, do you think that today's investors are better protected than 10 years ago, protected from fraud, from products that uh, are not well understood, from a market system that confuses their understanding of orders, all the things that a customer has to uh, be concerned about in executing orders. I don't know. I think so. I think that people have invented a lot of like quite exciting new ways to defraud customers, right? I mean, there's a lot going on in the very hyped Bitcoin, blockchain, cryptocurrency space that seems likely to end in tears, or in many cases already has ended in tears, where people have lost tens of millions of dollars for various you know, Bitcoin Ponzi schemes. There's the Jobs Act, the SEC rules allowing uh, much more kind of crowdfunding, much more private company fundraising with fewer protections. Um, I think some of that has, has been helpful for capital formation, and some of it has led to very dicey companies being able to raise money. But so, so in many ways, no. But I think that like the the big thing for me, the big, um, you know, like there are a lot of ways to lose money or be defrauded, but but 
there, there, it's, it does feel like we've had an evolution and it's much easier not to be. There's much easier products to, uh, for an unsophisticated investor, whom I certainly count myself one really, um, to like have very simple ways to uh, invest in, in, in things that don't charge high fees and that aren't Ponzi schemes, right? So you have uh, the rise of indexing, the rise of, of passive investing, you have robo-advisors, you have all these things where like the basic goal is to give people a diversified, intelligently designed portfolio for very low costs. So that's great, like that's really good. And you kind of like see the news coverage of that, like people are, are aware of that now. And so I don't know the answer to your question, but like it's possible that the median investor 10 years ago would have been like, I'm going to go to like a boiler room brokerage firm because what do I know about brokerage firms? Whereas the median investor now would say, I'm going to put all my money in a robo advisor who'll charge me, you know, 15 basis points for a diversified portfolio with tax loss harvesting. That might be a, a, a big improvement overall. Well, I think it would be an improvement, and I think that's where we are now. I think this is kind of cyclical in terms of passive and active investing. Right now, it's much more voguish to be in passive investing, but can you conceive of a change where active investing might uh, become more prevalent? Oh, yeah, that's definitely true. I mean, it's just, it's, it's, it's the sort of, you know, the iron law of investing is just chasing performance. And right now, for a variety of reasons, some of which are cyclical, you know, active funds have underperformed, you know, their historical performance versus the index. And I think that, you know, that will change. And particularly, you know, the next time the market goes down, you know, the next time there's like a 2008 style crash, I think it's going to be harder to be like, I'll just put all my money in the S&P and hope for the best. And so active will have a bit of a renaissance. You'll always have performance chasing. But I think there is like a kind of like secular trend towards uh, lower fee products, towards, you know, Whatever happens in like you know active versus passive mutual funds, I think like the trend is down for like individual single name stock picking by retail investors. I think that's just like you know you know fifty hundred years ago that that's that's how you that's the only way you invested is you bought individual stocks. I think that is uh, much less prevalent today. I think you have like the like weird gambling impulses are satisfied by weird ETFs, right? You have weird ETFs that are like, you know, devoted to whiskey or millennials or whatever, right? So that's not, you know, necessarily ideal, but like the the some of the ways in which to be defrauded, some of the ways of like, I will buy this biotech firm that I've never heard of, but like this guy sent me an email tip sheet about. Some of that is just becoming less prevalent. When asked about a government shutdown, Steve Mnuchin remarked, at times, there could be a good shutdown. In light of this, what do you think of the chances of a shutdown? And do you agree there could be a good shutdown? I don't really think there could be a good shutdown. Um, and there's a relative. There's like a government shutdown is bad. And then there's a default on treasury debt, which has been talked about frequently over the last couple of years, and which is catastrophically bad, much worse than a government shutdown. So in that sense, there's there's a good and a bad shutdown. It's just yes. the good one is also bad. Um, I don't know the odds. I, I, I mean, I, you know, we, we keep we keep managing to not default on the on the debt. Um, and it would seem that 
it seems that even you know it seems like no one is really incentivized to default on the debt now you know if we have one party rule and and the you know despite Nuchin's comments i don't think he's excited about defaulting on treasury debt so now the swings in stocks that volatility has fallen to a two decade low what's happened especially with all the hot spots in the world and apparent chaos in the white house yeah, it's hard to it's hard to answer that. So so stocks have always overreacted to news, right? It's a famous result from Robert Schiller of of you know stock volatility has always been higher than is justified by changes in you know the underlying cash flows, and stocks have also I think and this is perhaps less scientific, but it seems like stocks have overreacted to political news too, right? Like you know a new party comes in the White House, it's a party or it's a disaster or whatever. And you know, I think even even you know, um, in the in the run up to this election, you saw you know Trump had a good or a bad debate performance, and stocks moved a lot. Um, after the election, it kind of feels like the market has just said there's just too much going on. We were overreacting. We're going to take a step back, and so you see now kind of very limited reaction to very big political news. Part of that is because I think the political news. I think everyone kind of it's very difficult to tell how the political news. Affects anything, right? Like the the the, the political news is very divorced from actual choices of economic policy. He has a degree in classics from Harvard. He once taught high school Latin. He also has a Yale law degree. Was a mergers and acquisitions lawyer, an investment banker at Goldman Sachs, and an editor of Dealbreaker.com. 2013, we got the benefit of all that experience when he joined Bloomberg View. Don't miss his daily column called Money Stuff. Matt, thanks for joining us. By the way, if you have comments about the show or suggestions for topics, please email me at a closer look at Bloomberg.net. That's a closer look, one word, at Bloomberg.net. And follow me on Twitter at Arthur Levitt, one word. This is a closer look with Arthur Levitt. It's 25 minutes past the hour.